0: Hi, this is Panel Beta and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine, and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Facebook page. Today the show is coming to you live from the Triple R Studios. And we are abiding by all the social distancing protocols. So there is me, Dr. Mal in Studio 2 and Nurse EpiPen zooming in from Studio 3 and Dr. G-Spot zooming in from, looks like her bedroom there. We've washed and sprayed and wiped down the studios. You could do an appendectomy in here it's So Sterile because that's the standard we want to set. It's a new world out there and we want to get used to living in it in a different way. Now, hang on, was that too preachy? I hope not. So first up on the show, we will be speaking with Dr. Josie Summers. For the past 16 years, Josie's been working at the Alfred Hospital as the GP liaison consultant. She also works at the intriguingly named Late Effects Clinic at the Peter Mac Um, Now, being the interface between the hospital and GP care is not as simple as it sounds. For a start, hospitals are state-funded and general practice is funded federally. And that's just the start of the complexities. Josie, however, will walk us through just how she and patients negotiate the system. Our next guest needs little introduction. Uh, You will know her as the author of Up the Duff, as well as Babies and Toddlers and Girl Stuff and Girl Stuff 8 to 12. For over 20 years, Kaz Cook has been telling it like it is in a fun and entertaining style. Ask any teenage girl about anything girl-related, and odds are they can quote you lines from one of her books, or probably several of her books, really. Today, Kaz will be speaking with us about lots of things, including Dr. G-Spot's area of research, which is genital body image.
1: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organization in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rr.org.au to find out how.
0: Let's just see if I can hear you, EpiPen. Say hello to the audience.
2: Hello.
0: Hello. We were going to spend about 15 minutes, which we've just played through now, talking about um, uh, venting your spleen and the important work that you do. Uh, look, we will come back to it again, but could you just give us a, a, a sort of a, a, a kind of a précis of, of what's what you were about to say, or what you were supposed to say? And <laughs> my apologies.
3: Morning, morning, Dr. Mal. So, I think where we're going to start is just talking about the spleen. And um, Dr. Mal asked me about the history of. Um, Uh, venting your spleen and it comes from a sort of a 19th century medieval times when the emotion of anger was seen to be held in the spleen so if, if you if you let your anger out you would free your spleen of some angry thoughts and feelings and then you could possibly feel a bit better so you're venting your spleen it's getting stuff off your chest or out of your spleen. So that's where it comes from.
0: Oh, so anger was held in the spleen. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. I wonder so why of all organs, would you hold it in the spleen?
3: I didn't live in that time, so I can't really <laughs> reflect. But a lot of Shakespearean references to the spleen. Oh, really? Um, didn't know that. Yeah. Anyway, so given, given that this is my um, little section today, segment, um, I just, I'm just i the manager of Spleen Australia based at the Alfred Hospital. And I thought I'd just give you a story about how this was all set up. So in 2002, 18 years ago, is that right? Yes, that's right. Um, uh, There was a 23-year-old young woman who was admitted to the Alfred and feeling a bit unwell, and she had a past history of Hodgkin's lymphoma, and she'd had some chemo and a splenectomy, and she was well for several years and had Uh, was on penicillin to prevent um, some bacterial infections and had one pneumococcal um, vaccine. And then sort of this took her to 2002, eight years later, and she presented to the Alfred Unwell, very unwell, Mm -hmm. got very sick very quickly and went to ICU and died two days later. And my um, boss, Dr Dennis Spellman, was in ICU with the father, sort of sitting together while she was on the ventilator, not doing very well. Hmm. And he said to her, he said to to Dennis, the dad said to Dennis, could this have been prevented? Could her death have been prevented? Hmm. And Dennis said, yes. Hmm. It could have been if she had have had some information about getting to see a doctor quickly, if she started to feel unwell, had she been up to date with her vaccines, had she had had some antibiotics as a standby um, dose, Huh. to um To take if she was feeling unwell, huh. and so th- it was a tragic event, and it moved my boss very deeply and thought we've got we can do better than this so it, after sort of several applications to the Department of Health in Victoria for funding um, to set up a registry, so a database where we could collect patients and give them some information. Um, They eventually got, uh, was successful in 2003. I was employed to set the registry up Mm -hmm. and I was a, it was a one woman show and basically a register is a, is a, a, a database where you collect the patient data or information and a registry is the process of the whole service. So our, our mantra, if you like, was to educate and coordinate the care of people after a splenectomy or a diagnosis of a spleen that doesn't work, and and really to provide up-to-date information on how to reduce their risk of bacterial infection. So it's encapsulated bacteria that are that they have trouble with. So these are meningococcal, pneumococcal, haemophilus influenzae mm-hmm. type B. So... Um, in 2003 we got going 2007 it became a statewide funded service and in 2015 Tasmania and Queensland officially came on and Queensland the trigger for Queensland funding was because there was a little girl that died unnecessarily and um that was very tragic so so what what we I thought you might ask me, Mel, what does the spleen do or Dr G spot?
1: What does the spleen do, (laughs) EpiPen?
3: Very good question. (laughs) The spleen sits at the tail end of the pancreas and blood goes through it and it, it filters blood. So one of the things is it pulls out old red blood cells and munches them up and Uh, excretes them. And the other big one is it triggers an antibody response. So there are white blood cells in the spleen and they trigger this antibody response and then you can have um, an antibody reaction to the bacteria. So when you don't have the spleen, the white blood cells, so macrophages, they still are made in the bone marrow and circulate in the bloodstream, but they haven't got this little repository, little sack to sit in and have Um, run the job of filtering the blood and this antibody response so so what 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 does the registry do well it's it's where the big aim is to prevent infections so Mm. we educate people and we've got people of all ages on our database so from little babies that are born without spleens or have complex heart disorders to 90 year olds that have fallen over in the nursing home and and Mm. ruptured their spleen Mm. So it, the challenge there is educating and speaking to those sorts of people, different languages, different um Ethnic backgrounds, different. What's, um, I mean,
0: how do you educate them? What do you say? I mean, what sort of? So I, mean,
3: it, I think it's pretty much what I've just said to you hmm. and our listeners is the risk of infection. Hmm. So, which bugs? Hmm. What the spleen does, and how you can prevent these infections. Hmm. So, being well informed, yeah. carrying a spleen card that you can show people, and oh, really? um, yeah. yeah. So, so we and we've we so we've had to develop a whole host a raft of ways of educating people so we've got a a, a spleen song which i have (laughs) to say the adults the adults love more than the kids i think i don't know how many kids have listened to it
1: give us uh, a bit of uh, a few notes i'd love to hear this
3: (laughs) (laughs) a spleen
0: song
1: it's about it's it's
3: really about the spleen team giving you a routine so if you want to listen to it go to or Google spleen song Alfred Hospital and it's very catchy and it's great fun.
0: What well, the spleen We're, team gives you a routine. You've got it. Uh, somebody was using their rhyming dictionary then. I can <laughs> I can tell.
3: <laughs> and, and it's animated so it's really fun. Anyway, so we've got education. So we educate people about their risk of infection. What are the signs and symptoms of a bacterial infection? Rigors, um, so shivers, high yeah. temperatures, vomiting, diarrhoea, Feeling very unwell and when you've, I've had a sepsis, I've had a septic episode So, and you know that you feel really unwell and it's, it's weird, you just do not feel well at all, it's really, you feel very seriously unwell. I sometimes use the word crap or revolting, I mean you just don't feel well. So just hop it to the GP, or and if it's in the middle of the night, get to the ED department. Don't muck around. If you've got an emergency supply of antibiotics, you can mm. take that as well to start the treatment. So that's part of the education package. We also talk about travel to malaria countries because mm. people without a spleen can get a worse case of malaria. All right. yeah, animal bites, dogs and animal bites can give this fantastic bug, bacteria to people, Captain aphagic anemorsis.
0: What was um, that yeah. Captain
3: I don't think you could say that one this morning, Doctor Mao. Captain Neufajer Okay. It's a bug carried in animals, so that is—it's got encapsulated bacteria that can cause problems. And we okay. do have a man on our database that um, had quadruple amputations from his overwhelming sepsis. Jeez. Jeez. He ignored the signs and symptoms oh, for a couple of oh, days, oh. and then admitted to hospital and. They saved his life, but he had needed to lose some limbs. Tell me, so got, um,
0: with the, but you also, I mean, you've got a very big drive with um, inoculation uh, against uh, a whole range of bacteria, uh, don't you? So, you know, people who don't have a spleen, they get, don't they get yearly, or is it just a once-off pneumococcal vaccine? Or how often do you have to give the vaccine for, for pneumonia?
3: So that's my next section. So we've done education, mm. vaccinations. So we vaccinate against pneumococcal disease. So there are two vaccines there. There's a, an, and it's one of them's not as good as it used to be. Yeah. It's a polysaccharide vaccine, and the, we've the um, the new recommendations that have come in now, is there are only two of those doses of that vaccine in a lifetime. And then there's a conjugate vaccine, a pneumococcal conjugate vaccine. And that covers you for pneumonias, the pneumococcal diseases. So we, call about, we talk about invasive pneumococcal disease. Yep. We want to prevent that. And then there's meningococcal disease. We want to prevent that. So there's, so there's ACWY and a couple of, yep. And then we want them to know about um, uh, antibiotics, the role of antibiotics, mm. so you can use them. So, um, look, I could chat about this for ages and ages and I think um, in the interest of time. But I do want to uh, just really stress what we do, and that is coordinate the care of people. We don't do it. We advise the medical practitioners mm-hmm. what vaccines, how to bring them up to date. Yeah. How to, and we've got the most incredible team um, of people that we work with, hard, dedicated doctors and nurses, uh, pharmacists, uh, epidemiologists, and infectious diseases physicians, surgeons. So it's a wonderful team and wonderful collaborations with the Children's mm-hmm. Hospital and Monash, and and we've got three states: Victoria, Tasmania, and Queensland. But the what the trigger for today's talk is that we've just um, signed up a patron. So Daryl Brothwaite is our patron, Daryl, and, he, and he's on the Alfred Hospital um, Instagram page. Yeah. At, today supporting spleen and the other huge thing yeah. that's happened is that in this time of COVID where I never thought it would happen because I thought we would be financially compromised the Australian government has kept their promise to fund all the vaccines for people without spleen so without spleens and people that don't have a, fu- a
0: function, function spleen yeah
3: so this is this is you know when you have your first round of vaccines and your second round that adds up to six hundred dollars worth mm-hmm. of vaccines. So anyway, that's a lot. That's the most incredible news. So Daryl's out there promoting our funded vaccines and the registry, and that's it from
0: fantastic stuff. Um, yeah, look, I, well, <laughs> what I, t- I look, I've I've known your unit for a long time, and you do abs- absolutely fantastic work, and more power to you, uh, EpiPen.
1: You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.
0: You're with me, Dr. Mal. You're with uh, Dr. G Spot. You are with. Nurse EpiPen, you're on the wireless, you're on streaming, you're on podcasts, you're on all sorts of manner of, of things. And joining us is Dr. Josie Sammers. G'day, Josie.
4: Hello, Dr. Mel, how are you?
0: Can I just say, when I heard your voice come through the headphones, I have breathed this huge sigh of relief. It's working. It's working. Yay.
4: <laughs> oh, Mel, I can talk under wet concrete. There's no way it have worked. Pen can tell you.
0: Even without Not Zoom we'd still be hearing <laughs> you. So Josie look uh, we haven't met before tell us a bit about what you what you do.
4: Well I'm a GP by background and quite a lot of too many years ago I went in to start GP liaison and originally cool. I did that at Peter Mac but I've been doing it at with um, Alfred for sixteen years.
0: When you say liaison, that has various kind of connotations and interpretation. What does liaison mean, GP liaison? I
4: know. <laughs> it sounds almost. Um, I'm not quite sure what it sounds, but it basically what it means is where my service is a sort of a, a point of contact for GPs yeah. between the primary care and the hospital, and but we. We're really that interface so that we know what's going on in general practice and out in the community and we can work out when things are working and when they're not and we're also placed to be able to go and do something about it when things are not working well. So we, we also really we, we advocate for general practice and we can tell the hospital what needs to happen to make the care of our shared patients better. So it's, it's a fantastic Job and it's a great. We think it's a great service, but it also gives us a really awesome idea of what's happening out there for GPs in the community, which is really important.
3: So, Josie, you said this morning that you've been taking some calls. Who's been ringing you on a Sunday morning? I don't normally take calls, but I'm actually
4: at the moment I'm covering um, for one of my colleagues as the medical lead for the COVID screening clinic this weekend. So taking calls for that as
3: well. The Alfred Hospital Screening Clinic or?
4: Yeah, Alfred Hospital Screening Clinic. Oh, no, Penny. No, No, just the Alfred Hospital Screening Clinic. And it's busy this morning, is it? It's not that busy, but it's steady, steady. So all those great peeps down in our screening
3: clinic who do the most amazing job. Yeah. Amazing, amazing. And... And we met because you were helping us um, understand the GP situation with looking after people without a functioning spleen and you've helped us enormously. So is that is, oh, my request or my um, need to have a conversation with you, a common thing that happens in the Alfred Hospital where people come and talk to you about where we're getting our messages across or is that is that what sort of what the liaison job is? Yeah, that's a a small part of it. But yes, absolutely. So I
4: think one of the things that I've seen over 16 years is that we get more and more services getting in touch with GP liaison service to say oh how does this affect GPs or we need to get a message out to GPs where they see like exactly like you did um, you know how can we get the message out to general practice where we feel that they're not supported enough or there's something that needs to get through and we can get in touch with our GP general practice colleagues and and spread the word to them and and look at ways to help them. Uh
3: huh, uh-huh. and and one of the things that you did you mentioned about working at Peter Mac and working in the late effects clinic so I know a little bit about that but um, uh, Dr G spot and Dr Mal might not know about that would you could you tell us a bit more about that
4: yeah I've got very um intriguing titles really going on but the late effects late effects service at Peter Mac or the long-term follow-up service is a a service that provides long-term follow-up for patients usually who've had pediatric or childhood cancers and as a result of their usually they've had very complex treatments so they've had usually had surgery and they've had radiotherapy how appropriate and or chemotherapy and complex treatments and as a result of that they have um, late effects coming down the line going through to their adulthood so the late effects service looks after people um not always who have had children's childhood cancers but often after they're 18 then we follow them up or otherwise other people who have had um blood cancers who need follow-up which is why um EpiPen and I have forged quite a an alliance over the years, to because it's very important. A lot of those um, people have had their spleens removed or don't have a functioning spleen, and it's really important um, to get them on the spleen registry. So we follow up um, for all of the, all aspects of their care, whether it's um, medical problems or social issues or psychological problems. Then we follow up all aspects of that care and make sure that they are living as as healthy a life as they possibly
3: can. So is is it possible that there you're seeing less patients in the late effect clinics because we're not bombarding them with such strong radiotherapy and chemotherapy as children, or is it? Because I was certainly with people when they had lymphomas, they were given a lot of radiation and that radiation was affecting in adulthood. At, so radiation as a child and that was affecting them in adulthood with cardiac problems and lung problems because they were zapping them with high-dose radiation. Is, do you think you'll see less of those people in the future because we're giving less treatments? I think the nature of what we see is very different the radiotherapy's
4: therapies much more advanced and and tailored. And I'm speaking here as the wife of a radiation oncologist. So watch watch out what you're saying about zapping <laughs> EpiPen. Um, but I think radiotherapy now and chemotherapy is very different than it used to be. And the the I think like you say, we the treatments are much more tailored and less likely to have long-term effects. But on the flip side we're seeing lots more survivors of cancers so they're more and many more treatments so that's the other thing about the late effects clinic is that there are always new treatments coming for the treatment of cancer and we monitor them for new treatments that may not have um they haven't been around for Mm. so long so we monitor them and look at what the outcomes are in the long term so there's
0: don't you reckon that's that's, one of the i mean there's two sides that's fantastic there are new treatments but we're always playing catch up, aren't we? Like, you know, you have to let people know what's available because if it's happened within five years and they probably don't know, because you know, as a society, we kind of know what we see on TV and and and, and you know um, how it's portrayed in you know soap operas and Grey's Anatomy and stuff. But you know, there's even st- there's stuff that's so new that. You know, people who aren't in that field, doctors who aren't in that field, nurses who aren't, don't, don't even know it's around, let alone patients who, who might require it. And that that's a tough yeah. gig, Josie. You know, how do you tell somebody? I mean, what do you say to somebody? You say, do you say, look, um, this new treatment's come along, we're going to try it out, try it out? Or how do, how, how do you approach that?
4: Thankfully, Dr. Mel, I don't have to do that, but I think they certainly, that's, that's the real skill of our cancer specialists that they do. I mean, all of these treatments are so incredibly tested and trialed before they're released. Mm. So we do know what the likely um, outcomes are and, and everything's a balance, I think, in life. And certainly patients are are really, there's a lot of time spent talking to patients about what the advantages of treatment are and what the disadvantages are, because there can be nothing's with, you know, often things are are not without a a consequence. So that's a real skill.
0: So would you say to somebody, I'm just, I I really don't know the answer to this. Would you say to somebody that's that's had a cancer and been treated and they're effectively cancer-free, I mean, does it ever happen where a brand new treatment comes along that would be even better and they need to have that just to guarantee they're cured? Does that does that ever happen? No,
4: not no, okay. really. No. Okay. If you if you if you're out of the woods, you're out of, you're the, out woods, of the woods. Okay. Okay. But what our service does is make sure you don't get back into the woods again, um, really, and to make sure people stay well
0: right.
4: and that something doesn't come along again.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, So you do screening, obviously, for for, for physical uh, problems. You do screening for psychological problems. You do all that kind of stuff. Um, Just tell me again, how did you get involved in that? I mean, as a GP, to to get involved in that, how did that happen?
4: It happened, I think, because I'm, as previously mentioned, married to a radiation oncologist Uh who (laughs)
3: actually
4: works in the service. But because the... Like I said before, we're seeing so many more treatments and so many more survivors of cancer, which is fantastic. But that meant the numbers coming to our clinic were just increasing exponentially. And like everything in hospital care, we can, hospitals can't do everything. And what we deal with in the late effects clinic are complications that GPs are absolutely Mm, the best mm, people mm, to be managing them mm. so it's you know cardiovascular disease and Mm. screening for um for preventative cancers and things like that so we developed a shared care program in the late effects service so people could come and have their assessment of what they needed to look out for with our specialists and that's very specialized depending on what chemotherapy they've had how many how many epipen zaps of Mm. radiotherapy they've had and to wear Um, but I think then once that's worked out GPs are the best people of all to be able to manage those and that someone look, being looked after by their own GP. We're a statewide service. We've got patients in Tasmania as well. Much better to have them going and seeing their own GP and be on top of it who knows them really well than have to come into our clinic. Um, so we, we've developed that shared care model so that we support GPs to be able to care for these complex patients, but their own patients out in the community.
0: Hey, in, the, in the last, say... Since you finished medical school, so like 10 years ago, do you, do you reckon – okay, let's – since I finished medical school 30 years ago, do you reckon um, – how much do you reckon the, the idea of care has shifted from hospital-based care to community-based care? Because when I did medicine, it was kind of like the the hospital – I mean, it was obviously my very egocentric view, but I thought the hospital was it in a bit. I thought all, all care happens in the hospital. But now things are moving much more out of the hospital, the community. How much do you reckon has moved out? Do, you
4: know, 10%, 20%, 30%, 50%? Oh. A
0: lot. <laughs> gee, that's a
4: good question. And well, I think I think it is moving. And that's the whole point of the GP liaison service yeah. because there is increasingly, we know that hospitals, it used to be, like you say, hospitals were the hub. And yeah. that was where people went in and they, were cared for and nothing it was like a silo and then they got came out the other end and the the gp was expected to look after them maybe maybe not um now it's increasingly the the whole there's so much that we can do and and it's we're increasingly trying to get people to be cared for more and more by their gp's very appropriately and people like to be looked after not in hospital as well which i'm sure at the alfred we can't understand but um you know that <laughs> we're trying to do the best thing that we can for people and treat them most appropriately where they need to be treated so um and you know gps know about the whole person and they've got so much to give as well and the to family the and care.
0: everybody else and the yeah. kids and you know friends and yeah. the neighborhood and what's available yeah yeah i mean my sense,
4: yeah that's something that increasingly hospitals are realising that GPs have really got that to contribute to the care of patient while they're in hospital because GPs can say, that's a great idea to have this treatment plan, but actually that's not going to work because, you know, the patient has a dog and they don't want to go for, you know, can't leave the dog, all of those things that actually, that's life. And they're the really important things to people. Um, So I think it's becoming a lot more, we're all becoming a lot more mindful, I hope, of, what every, the different players in healthcare have got to, got to play.
0: Josie, hopefully on our next show or maybe the one after that, we can get you into the studio and we can have a long chat about this because uh, I know that EpiPen and uh, Dr G-Spot and myself are all very much about um, you know th- the role of community care and how important that is and you're a great person t- to chat to. Thank you so much for joining us and um, we will definitely have you in the studio once we can do that.
2: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au.
0: And we'd like to welcome to the show Gaz Cook. Gaz, how are you?
2: Hello. I feel like I need a pseudonym, but I don't have one. (laughs) Make one up for me. Yeah, if you
0: did have one, what would it be?
2: Uh, by the end of the show, I'll come up with something, but probably something to do with being a self-righteous git, I suspect, and having no qualifications whatsoever except the kind of driving need to, in my books, uh, interpret what doctors say, public health information and, um, yeah, stuff that, that people need to know if they're pregnant or uh Teenage girls and pre-teen girls mm. as well. So there's a lot of there's a lot of interpreting. I think. Mm. Well, I've, you've uh,
0: done your career no end of harm by, uh, by by selling it by coming onto our show this morning. So just deny. I say okay, <laughs>
2: this show, or, uh, and I, it sounds like nonsense because I'm on the show. But this show, through the years, has always done the best interviews. Just as uh, I can't remember the name of a show, but I'm just going to call it Mrs. McCarthy's Literature Den. Um, the book show on Triple uh, R <laughs> yes. has, has always been great as well. Just, um, yeah, so thank you.
0: Well, Mrs. McCarthy's around today somewhere. Um, now, the, the, we got you onto the show thanks to G Spot. And I'm, I'm going to, G Spot, over to you. Well,
1: oh, thanks so much, Dr. Malfractus. And so good to have you on, Kaz. I uh, I'd never had the chance to see you in person. So I hope we can get in the studio together sometime soon. Yeah, me too. I suppose, Kaz. I wanted to know first up. Like, you know, you you've been prolific in this space. What what um, in, like instigated you to start wanting to write books for women across the lifespan?
2: Oh, being entirely ignorant about almost everything. Um, so, uh, in fact, I do know now that your pseudonym is not an actual thing I Research on how the G-spot is a great big fib. Um, I know. I'm, I'm not even a real person, No, oh, I'm know. a robot. Look, darling, in, in some way we're all fictitious, really. Um, but look, I started, I wrote a book when I was uh, pretty young, like, uh, I forgot, oh how old was I? Twenty, twenty-five, twenty-six or something? Wow. I wrote a book called Real Gorgeous uh, about the beauty and body nonsense that women are told, which was something I felt really kind of outraged about in that way that you you can be when you suddenly find out about it, Um, that it's the extent of it. And actually, you know, it's, um, it's more than, well, I'm 57 now, so I guess as I've got older, I got pregnant, had a baby, um... I could see on the horizon that my daughter was about to become a teenager, and that's one of the reasons I wrote Girl Stuff. I'm just writing a book right now about the history of advice to women. Uh, and then my next book will be about um, getting older and menopause. So um, that, that I- is so necessary, Kaz. Like,
1: there's so little information in that menopause space, and a lot of women will be wanting to read
2: your book. The the problem that I've got, Dr G-Spot, is that I suspect most women want me to say, it's okay, you don't have to go through menopause. Here's the magic (laughs) bit that you do, and it doesn't happen to you. But uh, I have a feeling it's going to be a lot more complex than that. But, you know, I'm just doing the research for the book about the history of advice to women, and it's all that stuff about the wandering womb, and women's pain being dismissed, and Mm. Uh, You know, this this general idea that if doctors don't know why something is happening, you get told it's psychological and that worked for pregnancy, nausea, endometriosis, you know, all all sorts of, um, you know, autoimmune or I've just heard about a a friend who's finally been diagnosed as as, um, having a a gluten allergy, um, but it wasn't showing up in the sort of standard tests and she has spent decades Uh, you know, with really, really difficult symptoms and being told it was psychological. So that's all the stuff that I'm kind of fascinated with. And I'm also fascinated with public health information that doesn't cut through. You know, doctors want want women to know this thing, but the way they tell it is really (laughs) difficult. And, and, you know, I remember one of the things that really brought that home to me is a lot of women called me in the 80s and 90s and said, oh my God, I've been diagnosed with cancer. And I go, okay, hang on. Mm. what happened in the GP office, GP's office. And it was very often that they were told they had pre-cancerous cells because of a, um, a, a cervix test. Mm. But all they heard was pre-cancer, which to them meant that's what I'm going to get. And then the rest of it just kind of didn't go into their heads, understandably. So that's something that I am really interested in. And the other thing I'll say, and I'm faffing on, but the other thing that really got to me was when doctors were able to start advertising and, and, you know, they had profiteering clinics and that's just got, you know, worse and worse. And they got hold of the language. So they got to say stuff like breast enhancement and now they're saying vaginal rejuvenation. And it makes me feel quite violent that they've got control of words like that that are actually either not a thing, they're just, a, it's, it's not a medical thing, it's a thing they're selling that doesn't actually do what they say it does. Um, and that drove me crazy too. That, you know, and, and in some ways I feel like, you know, public health, people in public health and people like me are kind of trying to wrestle back that the language and the, and, and, and the information um, and the right way to get it to people. Absolutely, Kaz.
1: I want to come back to the vaginal rejuvenation stuff later. Sorry to trick you
2: off.
1: (laughs) I'll call it something different when we come back. Kaz, because you've been doing this for such a while, I was wondering, like, what changes have you noticed in the time that you've, you know, from when you started and your first book when you were 25 to now, like your advice for women? How, yeah, what are the biggest changes you've noticed?
2: Uh, The biggest one is the rise in the influence and power of the anti-vaccination movement. Um, When my uh, baby was born, it was 1998. It was just as the British press had become overwhelmed with unquestioning reporting of the now we know it to be fraudulent Andrew Wakefield um, study that was published in The Lancet. And, boy, did they take a while to retract that. Um, So... You know, I could see the start of that and tracking what has happened with that with social media has been really alarming and I think we're all going to pay for that. And it's one of those things that really made me think about how powerful uh, anecdotes and like scientists often disparage the idea of an anecdote as information but actually, I think if if public health departments, government health departments, had done campaigns of real people saying, "This is what happened to my baby that had whooping cough," real people saying, you know, in in from Samoa saying, "This is what happened. This is why 70 babies died last year of measles." That I don't know whether we're hardwired. That's a whole other argument. But I think it's ver- those messages are very powerful, and I think that chance has been missed by a lot of health departments.
0: Yeah, I was just—I was having dinner last night with, with a, a filmmaker and he and I were both saying how um, you can throw a lot of statistics around, but it's when you tell a story that's when people get convinced. There's and th-
2: and I, th- I think you have to empathise, and I certainly do, with uh, people saying... I'm worried about sticking uh, an in- injection needle into my baby. I'm so careful about what else goes into my baby, yeah. and that it's it's not fair to call people stupid mm. for mm. wanting to question mm. that, and it's actually just about how they get the information that answers that um, I, I think yeah, uh,
3: um, Kaz, there have been quite a few um, strong campaigns from parents of kids that have had um, complications from vaccines, which are extremely extremely rare. Um, so there have been some good messages coming out about that, but also it, we can look at what's been said about COVID. I mean, people in some of the Northern suburbs that think it's a hoax and it's, it's a beat up.
2: I don't think it's confined to yeah, the Northern suburbs, frankly, yeah. um, but uh, the Northern suburbs of Arizona are <laughs> alike with that theory. Um, yes. And, um, I, I, I think, um, it's never been more crucial to talk about how public health messages get out there. Yes. Um, and I think very often that they are imposed and they are, here's the rule. And I understand that sometimes stuff has to be done very fast. Sometimes, you know, that people do have to close a border or, you know, throw a quarantine. This, this, I've been talking to my uh, older relatives who are in their late 80s who remember being quarantined for polio in Melbourne being told to go in their house by police and stay in there because the kid across the road had polio, and that that memory, that knowledge, um, has been lost in in lots of ways. Um, so, yes, um, and it is that is a problem with with social. I don't know. Again, is it a hardwired thing? Is there a, is there a gene like that? People say there's a God gene. Is there a gene for saying I don't trust that? You know, I I I don't. Agree with I think I think the government will be lying to me. I do find the Bill Gates is injecting us with a microchip, a difficult one to get my head around. But I guess that is fr- fringe of the fringe. So I've got I think I think what's
3: happening with COVID is the, uh, what we're being asked to do is extremely unusual, and we as social beings. I mean, Mal and and G Spot can talk about how we're asked to be be very different from how we communicate how we you know care about people our expressions of people like hugging and and it's I I I get it I understand how difficult it is to not be socially connected in a physical way with people and that public message is is hard to sell.
2: Can I ask you guys because I I strike it in my in my books, my my book Up the Duff for Pregnant People, a lot of people say, to, a lot of women say to me, oh, surely one drink a night or two drinks a night is okay or drinking in moderation. You know, the things that people go, don't want to believe, they don't take on that information. And I think that's part of COVID. But, and that is that terrible sort of old-fashioned expression, non-compliant, Um but, I mean, what do you think, what does it take to get people to to go against what they really, really want to do? Is it fear? Is it, you know, altruism? What do you think?
0: I, I think on the whole, Australia has been pretty good. I mean, if you compare us to, the, you know, parts of the States or, or even the UK, I mean, we've been pretty good. And, I you know, and I've talked about this with friends of mine to, to figure out, you know, what it is about Australian culture that just makes us... Kind of look after each other and have a sense of community and 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 kind of follow the line. Sure, there are people that don't, but I, I really think on the whole we've been quite good. But as you say, Kaz, we, we do have very strong beliefs, and if we've lived with those beliefs for fifty years, it's very hard to turn them around in you know a week. If you've been used to you know hugging people and and shaking their hands and kissing them on the cheek for fifty years, I mean, all of a sudden, bang, you can't do it. It's very hard to unlearn those habits, you know doesn't happen quickly. And I and I, and I don't think it's – I think making people a little bit fearful is good. Making them very fearful is bad. I think you've got to give people the knowledge to, like, you know, this is dangerous and you've got to be, you know, duly worried. But I think if you really shock people and scare them a lot, that can make them retract. And I'm, you've got to strike that balance, you know.
3: And, and with your question about drinking and alcohol and being pregnant, so I've had two children um, – it 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 is a tough one, and uh, I think that's going back to Josie having a good relationship with your GP. They are asking you those sorts of questions. What are you doing about your health? What are you, you know? Are you getting enough sleep and rest and how and nutrition? And are you having too much alcohol while you're pregnant? Remember that you've got to care for this little baby that's growing, and you don't want to harm it. and
2: but I I think that's a very vague thing to say you've got to look after your baby are you having too much alcohol and that's why they've ended up with the rule don't have any but what that means is we've now got but there's two or three books on the market now saying don't worry about you know um, alcohol or coffee while you're pregnant the risks are small don't worry about you know salami and sashimi and Mm -hmm. you know all of that stuff and it's I mean, I believe in giving people the information so they can make up their own mind, like, you know, calculate their own risk. But if you're talking to people who think anything coming from the government is a lie because they're trying to control us or, and that's what's happening in America with those people who won't wear masks simply because they're being told to wear masks, um, that's, I think I think just not enough thought is has gone, gone into how to get and I think midwives and GPs and obstetricians do a fantastic, reassuring job of getting that information out there. But they're, but I've got to tell you that in any given group of women, it, it, what they're saying is, my sister-in-law drank wine every night of her pregnancy and her baby's fine. That's what they're saying.
0: Yeah, I mean, you, you, you can find those people who say, like, my uncle smoked, you know, a pack a day and he was fine, lived yeah. to us. Yeah, sure, you're going to find those people, but there's, you know, 99 people <laughs> who you do no I,
2: no, I have to tell you, it is huge. Mm. Women, you know, women do not like the no alcohol. A lot of women don't like the no alcohol room and, uh, rule, and I don't think it's, I don't think it's one in 100. Yeah. I think it's much bigger than that. Yeah.
1: I hate to cut this off, Kaz, but I feel like we need <laughs> to get back to our uh, vaginal procedures. Yes, <laughs> um, could we? let's talk then, about the the, just, the undercarriage, Dr. G spot. And, <laughs> and I think we'll just have to have you back on again very quickly, Kaz, <laughs> to explore these issues further. So Kaz, you know that I'm I'm running a study at the moment calling out to thirty to parents of 13 to 15 year old girls uh, because we've got this brand spanking new video that um, teaches them about the anatomy and function of their genital region because this is such a taboo topic which we know parents might struggle to chat with their young girls about um, and of course we'll be putting it on all our social media pages and you can also google me at Gemma Sharp at Monash and you'll find my contact details obviously I've given away my identity but this <gasps> is a great course. <gasps> so Kaz I know you've been doing heaps of Reading and researching on, I suppose, the negative outcomes of when girls and women don't, I suppose, um, don't understand or have um, misconceptions about their genital region. Feel free to take it away.
2: Well, yeah, um, and and, uh, I was really shocked when I found a few years ago that there was a rise in uh, cosmetic genital surgery for teenagers uh, as well as women Because we don't, I mean, let's face it, we don't go, hi, how are you, give us a look at your perineum. Um, We we, we generally don't know what other people's looks like. And and, and it's like when you first get your period and you're 9 or 12 or whatever and it's weird Um, and then it isn't weird when you get used to it. Um, But a lot of girls um, really feel that they're... um, genital area is untidy and perhaps lopsided all the very natural things and one of the things I do in in the girl stuff books is tell them to go to um, a website called labialibrary.org there's an Australian one and there's a global one but you know a lot of parents have filters on their computers uh, against porn and that's fantastic but what it means is a lot of young people aren't getting information about what is natural and normal and that there's a huge range of natural
1: yeah. yeah, I was going to say, Kaz, um, with our intervention video, we've we've um, designed it for adolescents, so it's not going to be caught in any of those filters. Right. So we've got some nice use of cupcakes, um, vagina cupcakes
2: and things like that just but to show wait, you wait. diversity. Don't tell them that it looks like a cupcake. You're part of the problem. What's going <laughs> on? <laughs> it tastes like a cupcake
1: too, obviously. <gasps> so, um... We all know that sweet and juicy um forgive me for these terrible puns um so Kaz, yeah it's I mean as you were saying before there's sort of a lot of profiteering going on around this um this sort of lack of conversation around normal appearance and normal function and um yeah we're seeing the outcomes of that through young girls requesting unnecessary surgery
2: yeah and at the other end of the so we've got that at the start of yeah. um at, of their life and then toward towards you know towards um, in, in, the, uh, in the final straight, we're getting people telling us that um, after menopause we need to have laser uh, treatment, so-called treatment, um, to, uh, which slightly burns the inside of the uh, vagina. And this is called vaginal rejuvenation and promises are made for it, which are not supported by any evidence. Um, and I know you, you would know much more about this, but that, that body image problem that young girl sorry, that young girls have, you're right, it's really hard for uh, dads and mums to have that conversation, which is why information in books that they can hide under their pillow and on videos like yours that they can see on their phone in private uh, are really important. Again, it's about how do you deliver the, me- the message? Um, and I think it's fantastic that you're doing that research and, boy, are you up against it, getting, you know, parents to uh, agree for their 13 to 15-year-olds um to, to, to participate in a study about what their genitals look like. But I, I know that the ethics committee at Monash has looked at it and it's a very, um, you know, your, your, your doctors and scientists. And so I, you know, I really um, hope you get the word out for
0: Ka- that. Kaz, I have the terrible job of winding you up because we're getting very close Sorry. to the hour. And, I didn't uh, you know, go on. no, 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 no. We, I mean, I'd love to chat to you for hours, but thank you so much for being on the show today. Hi.